Hello everyone and welcome to Vassals of Kingsgrave, a community podcast. In a bit of a departure from our usual programming on chatting about books and TV shows and movies, today we are just going to have a bit of an informal chat about animals. I'm your host Peter, I'm known as Shellfish on the forums and Discord or whatever, the interwebs. And today I'm joined by Jock. Hi, my name is Jock. Uh, my poor name is Long Dong Silver. And Abby. Hi, Abby or uh, Daisy Mormont. And Sarah. Hi, Sarah, aka Dr. Blood. All right, so this is actually something that I'm hoping might turn into a series of podcasts called Creature Chat. Um, I got the idea. I used to make these forum posts or threads about discussing different kinds of imaginary creatures like dragons and vampires and werewolves. And in the threads we would discuss things like what is this creature based on or like what are the different sort of sorts of depictions of it or like what are the real vampire rules or what kind of um, abilities they should have or stuff like that. And so I thought it might make for a nice sort of just a topic for a podcast and the, then on the discord we had some some cool like sidetracks on just real animals so i figured we might start there because many of these like fantasy creatures are of course based on real animals and that's kind of like the ground or the base for a lot of this stuff so i thought we might just discuss animals this first time so maybe we could start by defining animals like, what are they, and what kind of stories do they appear in? Obviously, animals are these like parts of the world that move around and make noises, so they're unlike rocks and trees in that way, that they're living beings that move around, and they're animate, I suppose. And I guess that means that they have souls, then. But we can get back to that later. So how would you guys define animals? I would think it's, yeah, I, I, I kind of think you just did, right? I was going to say anything alive that's not human, but anything that's mobile and not human, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess not plants then, but I guess that's sort of that, that can get a little tricky because there are some animals that are basically like plants, like... I guess like a clam is like technically an animal, but it's so passive and immobile that it might as well be a plant. Or coral would be another, yeah. Like a, yeah. I have like a, a cop-out answer where I could read a quote from Eduardo, I cannot say his, he's Brazilian, so Eduardo Vivieros de Castro on like how we define like what is an animal and like what is a human or like what is non-human, I guess. Oh, but, please like... do. Doesn't okay, sound so like this... a at all. Yeah, so this is from his uh, Cannibal Metaphysics work, um, page 57, Cannibal I want to say. Cannibal Metaphysics, sounds tasty. Yeah. yeah, it's on work he did in um, Am the Amazon with some like indigenous groups, I think. But so like basically he says that like animals see themselves as human so like this is a bear quote that he has like in there where it's like the human being sees himself as what he is the loon the snake the jaguar 
and the mother of smallpox, however, see him as a uh, tapir or a picari to be killed. So it's kind of like animals regard humans as prey or predator, and then humans kind of regard animals as like a different entity. I guess is how to ex- like how you can explain it. Like like animals think of the. I, this is like a. I think it's Descartes where it's like the if you can think of it, the, or I think therefore I am. So it's like. Animals think of themselves as the center of things, and then humans think of humans as the center of things. So there is, like, no way to, like, truly define. Like, people might say, like, oh, humans have culture, and that's what makes them different, or they have distinct language, which some animals actually kind of have, like, regional <laughs> dialects. Yeah. But it is kind of like a it's, – it's all – I don't want to say like cultural relativism, but, but like – it's sort of that sort of uh, us and other divide there with yeah. animals sort of – as well yeah so i don't know that i would agree that animals don't see humans as something different i mean i i think it's a learned perception but i do think that there are widespread sort of species communities that know about humans and like have heard that we're assholes you know what I mean? <laughs> okay i think that's a pretty consistently transmitted so that's uh, sort of suspicion if not fear among a number of animal communities. So do you think that the sort of fear of man that some animals have is unique to other predators, that or fear of other predators they might have, like? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I guess structurally we do just look like predators, right? Like we have the, the forward-facing eyes and, you know, we sort of move, you know, we're not, we move differently, right? But um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that we're at least recognizable among the the predatory group but yeah that's a good question whether we're just like in the category predator or whether we're we're distinguished as like extra problematic yeah because some animals like uh i think prairie dogs they have different calls for different kinds of predators that are coming if it's like a snake or or a eagle they're gonna make a different kind of noise to warn the group about it like if a human being would or if the smell of a human or the sight of a human might have like a different different kind of warning call or if if they're just oh shit there's predator coming just hide hide get out i think also it depends on like from the human perspective at least what kind of uh culture or like society you're in because if you're in like an agricultural or like pastoral society you're gonna see animals more as like a distinct separate thing from humans but if you're like maybe a hunter-gatherer society you might see animals as like something in tandem with you because you also are at a um like could be potentially in like a, a prey situation so there's like it depends kind of on like how you interact with the animals in your space <laughs> yeah so, so you're still part of the food chain in that way in in a hunter-gatherer society and not so yeah. much in an agricultural or or advanced society that's a great point too because there are situations in which humans have much more cooperative relationships with animals as well. So, um, you know, whereas like at what point does an animal become regarded as a tool, um, like a plow horse or something versus like a, a partner, like a, you know, hunting dog or a, um, a horse that you would ride into battle or something like that. Like where does collaboration become, um, become use? So in sort of a like a maybe a word association game sense, if I say animal, what kind of animal does that make you think of? Or if you had to like write 
the big book of animals and put just one animal on the cover, what animal would you put on the cover? What picture of an animal would it be? I mean, I always, my first thought goes to like mammoths, which don't even exist anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But like, I don't know. I just like, if I, when I'm thinking of like humans and like evolution, especially because I'm from North America. So like mammoths were like a big part in like population of the migration of people to the Americas. So I just like, if we're thinking of like animals and how they have impacted or interacted with humans, like mammoth. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good like iconic uh animal to use like it's like a magnificent beast like and there's also that like i don't know like awesomeness of being from a bygone era as well like the giants that are no more i think i would i would pick a monkey um because Mm, my imagination is limited (laughs) (laughs) um no because it um it raises the the immediate questions that we're talking about right like at what point does you know is monkey no longer monkey in person right um what is that because you know it's not the use of tools it's not transmission sort of, of straddling stuff. that line between yeah culture like, like yeah like where do, where does that stop um but especially I'll, with monkeys because they can like they like pass down method like tools yeah. usage it's really yeah, crazy yeah. monkeys are awesome so <laughs> i wish i had said monkey i love monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> or just like primates chimps or whatever yeah i don't know but what kind of monkey would be on the cover of the big book of animals mm. i think it's spider monkey like one of those little ones with the little tiny fingers are those the black ones yeah well really anything with it with a tail, like a proper monkey, but I don't know. I don't know why. I think I would just like to look at that on my shelf. <laughs> okay. Cool. Well, if I think we've successfully defined what animals are, so maybe we can move on to personal experiences with animals. Like, I guess just maybe talking about our personal relationship with animals or just some impactful or... Um, impressive experiences you maybe had like with pets or wildlife or stuff like that like well I for example even though I am quite interested in animals and always have been I've never really had a pet myself and uh, I haven't had much sort of first-hand interaction with animals I don't have hobbies that involve animals like horseback riding or hunting or fishing and uh nor have I worked with animals, so it's more uh, more of an abstract interest for me, I suppose. You've never had a pet? No, never. My brother had a hamster when I was young, but it escaped and died of depression in the end. Oh no. I had a snake that refused to eat mice and died, I think, also of depression, honestly. Like, he kind of just wasted it. It was really pathetic, actually. Like, he would, you know... He would just stare at them. <laughs> like, uh, when was this? Like, like how old? Oh, were you? I, oh, I was I was in college. I thought it would be cool. Okay, did you? Did you feed it live mice or try to? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I think I like you start with um, pinkies, which are like the the hairless, like the baby ones, and then I think he was too young when I started trying to feed him ones that were alive, and I think the first one that was in his cage bit him. Um, and it, like, upset his sense of the world, and so he just, like, was afraid of the mice, which I think was, like, very confusing also for the mice, because I think they kind of went to their 
you know, their encounter with him, like, resigned to their fate, and then he wouldn't go anywhere near them, and anytime they touched him, he would, like, jump and slither away, and they, they would kind of just look very <laughs> confused. Ugh, I've always wanted a snake, but my mom was so afraid, and I was like, I'll get one when I go to college, and she's like, Abby, no one's gonna want to hang out in your room if you have a snake. <laughs> I think you get the right, like, my friend had a corn snake in high school, and it would fall asleep on your arm, like, it would literally wrap itself Yeah, I used to pet sit for a family that had a snake, and it was amazing. Yeah, mine was a dick. He, he like, <laughs> he would bite me whenever he got the chance, and if I came near his cage, he would tap his tail on because he was king snake right so they eat rattlesnakes and he would tap his tail on the side so it would make like a rattle sound and I'm like I know you're not a rattlesnake like what are you what are you doing like why are you, why are you like this but he was yeah that was a failure as far as pets go <laughs> and pet ownership to be fair yeah I had as far as like I had dogs growing up they were like not my dogs you know like my parents but I had uh, two zebra finches for a little while but then um, we had to like, get rid of them because we thought they were both female but turns out one of them was a guy and they started mating and I was like 10 so I was like not prepared to deal with having to like care for a baby egg so the then I got finch? a parent yeah they're just a type of finch that have like stripy things on their neck so they call them zebra finches um, but then I got a parakeet when I was I can't remember if I was 10 or 11 because he's I don't remember if he's 10 or 11 right now. His name is Ringo. Technically, I guess he's my mom's now because, like, he lives in America <laughs> and I don't. <laughs> um, and, like, my mom, when I went away to school, like, moved him out of my room into her home office. So, like, when she works from home, he hangs out with her. Um, he's kind of a dick, too, because he's really afraid of people. So, like, he doesn't like to be held or anything. Like, he'll fly around, but then, like, you have to, like, chase him to put him back in his cage. Um, <laughs> Our parakeets uh, smart. Yeah, they're. I think they have like someone said like they. Ha- I read once they have the mental capacity of like a three or four year old, which oh, like, cool. yeah. Um, and then I had rats for a couple years in university. We actually hid them in our our dorm room for the. <laughs> we hid them in our closet and then we moved into an apartment. Um, and now I have a hedgehog. And she's a grumpy bitch all the time. She also won't eat grumpy. bugs, which hedgehogs are supposed to eat, like, mealworms and stuff. And I'll go to the pet store and buy them for her. And she's just like, what is that? Like, I don't want it. Uh, <laughs> so hedgehogs eats, are very cute. Yeah, she eats cat food instead. Um, <laughs> That's and she, like, a bit of an pees. unusual pet, I think. I'm not sure if I've yeah. ever heard of anyone else having one as a pet. Yeah. Do you agree with that assessment? Are they rare? Yeah. Well, it depends. Like, I always wanted one when I was a really little kid, but there's a lot of, like, laws regarding, because they're an exotic pet, regarding um, in the states and in Canada, like, which states or provinces will let you own them. And I think Illinois, you can have a hedgehog, but my mom was like, no. (laughs) She's like, no hedgehog for you. (laughs) So um, I do think it's, like, because there's a lot of restrictions about if who can and can't have hedgehogs, like, it is harder also they're they're quite expensive like the animal themselves like they're they're very cheap to take care of like even compared to my rats like rats are cheap to buy i think my one right rats was like seven dollars but they chew through everything and they eat a lot of food whereas hedgehogs don't chew things so you don't have to keep buying stuff and she doesn't eat that they're like tiny so they i can have a bag of cat food and it'll last me like a month and a half so she's very cheap to maintain (laughs) So they're pretty sensitive, though, aren't they? Like, aren't they kind of difficult to 
Yeah, so I was a little worried because, um, yeah, they can go into, like, hibernation and, like, they'll die if they do that. But, like, and I was a little worried because, like, I live in Quebec, so our winters are pretty, pretty bad. But um, I just bought her a heat pad and, like, also, I guess, like, because I live in Quebec also, heating is really cheap here because it's um, all hydro. So every room you can temperature control in, like, every apartment I've ever been in. So I've never had, like, an issue. I I mean, I keep thermostats in her cage and, like, check it every day. But um, she just, like, sleeps on her little heating pad and then, like, everything is fine. (laughs) So why, why would she die if she went into hibernation? Aren't they supposed to do that? I think because like in the wild I think it would be like they have more like fat stored up or something I don't really know why like it's dangerous for them in captivity to go into hibernation but like like you can wake them up if they if you catch it early enough but like otherwise I think it's probably because they don't have enough like fat stores or something okay yeah I think they're like in the wild they sleep under like piles of leaves and stuff like that like yeah after eating a ton of worms so how smart are hedgehogs um i would i mean i don't know off the top of my head like i feel like they're pretty stupid because they're pretty (laughs) they're like they're like basically (laughs) blind like they can see like 10 feet in front of or 10 inches in front of them and they only see in like brown and yellow and it's like super blurry so they don't really like they're they don't really know what's going on around them and like i took penelope to the park once and she was afraid of like the grass so uh, yeah well that says something <laughs> yeah like there's they're super prey animals like they're afraid of everything whereas like my rats were because rats are really smart um you can like teach them their names and tricks and things and hedgehogs i think you might be able to teach them like some tricks but like it would require a lot of patience and like i don't have that patience i just let her run around and hang out with me <laughs> okay so what kind of a relationship do you have think you have with your hedgehog like I think I guess I think of dogs when I think about like the kind of relationships people can have with uh, have with pets because I guess dogs are kind of the gold standard for that in my mind at least yeah so I always compare I'm gonna talk about my rats again because I I love rats like I like rats are like little dogs because like they just want to hang out and be your best friend and like give you kisses and play with you whereas like hedgehogs are really Mm antisocial like and so like Penelope will, like, burrow into my, like, armpit or something if I, like, I, like, put her on my bed and she'll, like, try to hide and she'll, she'll, or, like, run around my bed and stuff. But if she wants to, like, hide somewhere, she'll, like, try to burrow into, like, any part of my body because it's warm, I guess. But, um, yeah, mostly it's just, like, I put her on my, I have this little, like, sock, fleece, big giant sock thing for her and I, like, to sleep in and, like, sometimes when I'm, like, at working because I work from home now, like, I'll put her on my lap and, like, she can, like, sit and sleep while I do like stuff on the computer but it's like yeah it's it's much more of a, a passive relationship but um she's still very cute <laughs> okay so not very affectionate but can yeah, you not pet very her or like yeah stroke because they would oh yeah I, I pet her like she lets me pet her um belly and stuff but um because she's afraid of everything like sometimes I'll be petting her and she'll be fine and then all of a sudden she'll be like what's happening I don't understand like even after I've been petting her for like five minutes and like, she'll start like huffing and I'm like Penelope. <laughs> so like today I learned that I'm a hedgehog. That's, that's everything <laughs> that you're describing. I'm like, oh yeah. Like, eat too yeah. much, fall asleep, might die. Okay. Uh, <laughs> afraid of everything. Sure. Like random mood swings. Absolutely. Yeah, no, she's very cute though. 
I, I definitely need a pet that, first of all, reminds me that it exists, which speaks a lot about my, like, my sort of responsibility as a pet owner. But then also, <laughs> like, I just, I don't know. I need them to, you know, love me. Like, I. Well, that's I the whole know. point, isn't it? Well, I mean, kind of, right? Like, there's so much responsibility that goes into pet ownership. You have to, you know, and if, if you're taking care of something that, like, perceptibly either hates you or is just, like, indifferent to your presence, like, I don't know. Dog's like, oh, my God, you're amazing. And I'm like, you know what? I am amazing. You're amazing, too. And it's, like, this mutual uh, sort of spiritual reinforcement. But cats are just like, I would eat you if you died. And I'm like, I know, and I hate you for that. I'm like, I, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess because, like, I had um, two of my, my roommate, she had two cat, or she had a cat, and then we got another cat during quarantine, but they moved out. But, like, I really miss having that, like, animal. Like, I wasn't a cat person before this, and, like, but I miss having that, like, animal that will just come and, like, sit on your lap and, like, be, like, give me attention. But I knew, like, once I lost my last rat, I was, like, thought about getting more rats, but they're, like, I was, like, I'm not in a place in my life right now where I can, like, commit to an animal that needs a lot of attention. So I like having the hedgehog because she can, like, she, I can give her attention and, like, she'll, like, hang out with me, but she doesn't require me to, like, constantly keep her stimulated, I guess. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so that being think said, that... everyone should have pet rats. They're so cute. <laughs> mm, I don't know. That feels like... I feel like most people probably have kind of an averse reaction to rats, like... Think of them yeah. as disgusting carriers of disease and like this kind of like a very neg negative attitude to rats. It's because they've all been brainwashed. Like my one roommate was from Alberta, and in Alberta, yeah, there are in Alberta, there's no rats. Like they pride themselves on not having any rats. Like you, they if there is a rat in Alberta, like the government is like get that out. And she, my roommate was from Alberta, and I was like, you've just been brainwashed by your government to think that rats are terrible. But they're not. <laughs> they're amazing. They just have creepy tails. But once you get past the creepy tail, they're the best. But yeah, they're don't you think that they, that in the course of human history, rats have been terrible, but that we're just in a point now that they aren't okay. as much trouble for us, but... That so the... rats have... There's like a difference between like domesticated rats, though, and like wild, or like, I guess like you think of like sewer rats, like they're they're different. Yeah. Like, I, I, I mean, like, they're the same species, but they're different, I guess. And rats have been domesticated for, like, 400 years. So, obviously, like, they're they're not, like, a thing people would have had as pets before, like, at least in late 1800s or whatever, whenever people started getting into, like, hamsters and rabbits and things. But, like, I don't know. They're cute. <laughs> How did that happen? Like, I... Do we know, like, the history of pet keeping? I... I don't, but I, I mean, dogs have always kind of been, you know, yeah, they got I, gradually less useful, but like. <laughs> I, I feel like it was just kind, kind of like a, I'm rich, so like, look at my like menagerie uh, of yeah. things. Yeah. Like a conspicuous consumption, um, kind of. I think it might have started with pigeons. Like, um, for example, in Darwin's um, the Natural Selection book, the first seven day pages are on pigeon bleeding. Because um, the bleeding of pigeons was the, at the height of fashion at that time. So I think I might have started with um, pigeon bleeding as a pet. That's cool. 
like just yeah. just pets just for fun like i think there's like these old paintings of noble ladies with ferrets and stuff or like a petting a lamb or something like that but most animals probably were work animals or useful some in some way in the beginning like i guess dogs and cats would have been useful for hunting and guarding and pest control and stuff like that and just sort of grew from that into being also like this pets to get some like emotional attachments to yeah like i'm sure before like i don't know in, in terms of like western culture like I, I don't know anything about pet keeping in um outside of like western european and like north american culture like pets probably were like because people i know people had like menageries like like kings and stuff had that kind of thing when they started like exploring the world yeah the but, sea like, lord yeah. of bravos has one at least <laughs> yeah but um yeah because like i remember i went to greece once and um there's like a lot of wild dogs there and um i was like very surprised like we were all very surprised by like how many wild dogs there are and they're like all tagged or something so they don't have like rabies but um, we were asking our tour guide about it and he was saying like oh like they just don't have like a pet keeping culture there like i mean someone who's greek may contradict me like you know whatever <laughs> um but like they just it's not as like big of a thing to like have a pet dog unless you like work on a farm and you need to herd sheep or something so i think it is more of like a elite like a, a capitalist like if you have a, a a society that has like a lot of leisure time i guess if that makes sense yeah makes <laughs> yeah sense. well i mean i think peter to go back to the the like paintings of the, the sort of medieval paintings of women with yeah, like an ermine or a or whatever. Like I think in that case it was a prestige thing. Like you know, I don't need to eat this lamb. I can keep it and raise it as a child. Or <laughs> like, um, but and also I think with like more exotic things like a monkey or whatever, like anything you know that that royalty would exchange. Like you know, somebody mailed Queen Elizabeth an elephant, and she was like, "Oh, this eats too much," and and sort of <laughs> put it away in the tower. But. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm very interested in the the sort of mundane, you know, yeah, like a hamster. Like when somebody like, hey, I'm gonna keep this in my house and give it some snacks. Like it, it just seems like a different. Um, but yeah, I can still see it being very much tied to conspicuous consumption. Where you're like, oh, so much grain, I'm gonna throw some at this little thing. I should be letting my cat eat. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I don't really have any evidence for this, but I feel like those like rodents as pets like hamsters and guinea pigs and like gerbils like those feel like a recent thing to me like kind of like a starter starter pet for your kids like try if you can handle this one and maybe then we'll get you a real pet like a dog or a cat but i read something recently that was interesting about pigeons that they actually were like domesticated and kept as pets and it was like a big pastime to raise pigeons as like messengers and stuff but then people just sort of got sick of them and released them to the wild and now they're just hanging around the cities and people think of them as flying rats and like it's basically like they're just abandoned pets so they're the first uh like what's that thing i, I want to say it's in new zealand or whatever where there's just like a lot of cats that just like people were like eh, i don't want this cat anymore and now they have like this huge cat problem there where people are just like Eh, I don't want this pet anymore, and they just like released it into the wild. And so I guess pigeons were the first. Yeah, I guess. I mean, they call those like summer cats in Finland. Like, I'm I'm not sure if that's a worldwide phenomenon. Like, you get a, I guess, 
get your kids a pet for the summer, but then you don't want to take care of it anymore, so you just chuck it in the wild. Oh my god! <laughs> yes, that's like a thing. That's like I guess they would call them like Christmas puppies and like kittens yeah. or whatever. Like I don't. They're always like people are always warning against it. You know, it's like adopt, don't shop. But I've never actually like known anyone who got a pet and then was like, oh, you're not cute anymore, or like was it were just like randomly decided they didn't want the pet like usually it's like oh like i moved and my apartment doesn't let me have a dog anymore so now i have to find a new home for it but like it's usually more conscious i guess <laughs> yeah I think to happens. be like yeah, think... clear i that's not like something that my friends all do it was just something that's in the culture that i know this <laughs> term like summer cat yeah, we have like like rabbits at Easter. I think because another you know because everybody's like, oh, I'm gonna get a cute baby bunny for Easter, and they're like, oh, bunny is still here, <laughs> but which you should not do, and it's very bad. But like I don't think first... we have a I don't think we have a cultural term for it. That's a little bit upsetting. <laughs> yeah, like our first dog. Um, I wasn't born when my parents adopted her, but like they just like went to the pound, and there was like a ten month old Samoyed, like purebred Samoyed, that was there, and they were like, yeah, we want that one, and like she because like Samoyeds. Uh, are very like nice dogs like they're very expensive and whatever and it was just like some person had like gotten a Samoy puppy and then moved into an apartment that didn't let them have dogs and was like well I guess I'll just drop off the Samoy at the pound that I spent a lot of money on and so our dog Sammy was at the pound for like 10 hours and I was like why would you even get like a nice purebred dog if you don't think that you can have a dog yeah that sounds fucking bizarre like irresponsible as hell. But she was only there for 10 hours because, like, <laughs> so puppy at the pound. <laughs> so that's maybe a good segue. Like, do you guys think that having pets teaches you something valuable about responsibility or does it improve your character or, like, is it just, is it good for you to have pets? I think it depends pretty heavily on how the concept of pet ownership is introduced to you like I mean I think if you buy your you know nine-year-old a hamster and then don't impress upon said nine-year-old that like hamster needs food and water and a clean cage that you're sort of perpetuating irresponsibility Um, but I think if you conversely if you instill a, a sense of responsibility but also you know just sort of like obligation right that you this is a living creature that you need to take care of if you say you're going to take care of it then I think in that in that case yes it would but I don't think it's a um I don't think it follows yeah exactly yeah I don't think it's guaranteed yeah like when I got my first birds like first I was supposed to get a turtle actually and it was the whole thing but like so my parents and I did like months of research you know on like how to take care of a turtle and like my uncle has a turtle so we like called him and was like yeah 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 I'm glad I didn't get a turtle they live so long (laughs) but so then it was like okay not a turtle let's get a bird instead and so like my parents like made me like do a lot of research on it and everything and like I mean I it lived in my they all three of the birds that I had they like all lived in my room um and so like I was in charge of you know like feeding it and whatever like and going to the pet store, actually, well, I didn't have to start going to the pet store until I could, like, drive, <laughs> but, like, you know, like, paying for the food and everything, and, like, I obviously, like, didn't, it was, really, like, the birds are very easy to take care of, but, like, my mom did always have to bug me to, like, clean the the cage, because <laughs> I was, like, I don't want to do that, like, every day, so I would do it, but she would yell at me a lot to do it, so I don't know if it taught me, like, responsibility like I guess I'm I'm really good about cleaning Penelope's cage now like I I have a a schedule you know where I like do this every day and then 
every week I do this, but like, I don't know if that's from me having a bird or the fact that like she lives in my room and it will get stinky if I don't clean her cage every day. Yeah, I think there probably can be some character building aspects to pet ownership, sounds like it might have helped you grow as a person. My first pet was a lab guinea pig. Um, in Finland, Peter, you'll be happy to know. It was a Finnish lab guinea pig. Um, was it rescued was, from a lab? Uh, I think it was, like, appropriated from a lab. Like, I think I said I wanted a guinea pig, and I was like, what the fuck do you get a guinea pig in Finland? And so she went to a friend of ours who worked at a lab and was like, can I have one of your guinea pigs? And he's like, sure. Um, I, don't, I don't know how ethical that is. But, um, but, yeah, she was white, and she had red eyes, and she was, like, kind of terrifying. But I don't know what happened to her, which I guess sort of speaks to the question of when I was four, <laughs> so like, I have no idea what happened to that guinea pig now that I really think about it, but um, yeah, she was messed up though. She was, like, I think she was nice, but she was really scary looking. Yeah, I guess I never had the, like, you were saying, like, you know, like, hamsters, gerbils, guinea pigs, they're, like, starter pets, especially because they don't live very long, and, like, my dad is allergic to a lot of animals, except for, like, dogs, birds, and reptiles, so, like, I never had, like, the starter pet, I guess, which is, like, I've, like my cousins had a hamster, and they, like, didn't give a shit about that hamster like it was you know it was their hamster but my aunt ended up taking care of it and stuff and so I guess there's like that thing because like my bird if my bird got mad at me like he would scream so it's like you know it's like I gotta keep Ringo happy because he will yell at me if he is not happy whereas like a hamster can't really make any noise yeah they can protest their mistreatment yeah my first real pet was um, a pair of gerbils. And similarly to the finches, Abby, like we thought that they were sisters and they were apparently brother and sister. Oh no. They they had 957,000 baby gerbils. um, Some of whom like every once in a while were born with like one eye or so, you know, some some kind of like, Targaryen gerbils. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where they were Targaryen gerbils. Yeah. On like hamsters and gerbils, because she she had hamsters when she was a kid, and she told me like the mom ate the babies, and I was like, okay, never, (laughs) never doing that again. I don't, I don't know that our, I don't know that ours ever ate, but they were so sweet. Like whenever she was giving birth, he would be over there, like, like cleaning her fur and like rubbing her neck and stuff. Like they were really, they were actually very good parents. That means um, they weren't in a stressed environment if they don't eat the babies. So good on you. <laughs> good on me. Like that's good. Um, Isn't that yeah. where the term savaging comes from? Like when like uh, pigs will eat their own babies when they're stressed, and that's called savaging. I think. I did not know pigs did that, but maybe. <laughs> What's the mother pig called again? It's a. Uh, a swine. No, a sow. 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 Yeah. 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 Cool, 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 cool. So I guess like the, the baby eating segment. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! This the baby eating segment. So I guess asking about the character building aspects of pet ownership. I guess I thought about the idea that, like for a lot of kids, maybe their first pet dying is maybe their first brush with death, and maybe kind of like that kind of life lesson in a way that they first get introduced to the idea of death in that way. Have you had I that experience? That's, I think that's true. I don't I don't specifically remember any of my 
pets dying, which is like a really weird gap in my, like, I don't know where any of those pets went. That's so upsetting. But anyway, um, my, my daughter was three when one of our dogs died and that was really hard because like she was still asleep when he, he just passed in his sleep. But yeah, like I was devastated because we'd had him for like 15 years. And then when she woke up, I was like, I had to explain suddenly like, you know, this concept of like mortality. <laughs> like, it was very, <laughs> Fun it was, yeah, it was, it was messed up. So we, we told her that um, he went up to the stars and I let her say goodbye to him before I took him away. And she, she was like, she had this very insightful moment where she was like, well, that's not, that's not Mr. Puck. And I was like, I mean, it's not Mr. Puck. And she's like, he's not here anymore. And I'm like, all right, well, you're dealing with this a lot better than, uh, than I am. But okay. Body is no <laughs> longer like, him. Yeah. It was like, it was really amazing though, because like she had never, you know, I don't know. She had no sort of intrinsic. It must've been some kind of intrinsic frame of reference for her because she was just like, it was very matter of fact. And she was just like, oh, it's not him anymore. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, but yeah, that, we definitely would not have had that conversation if it hadn't been for, for Mr. Puck. Yep. When my dog Sammy died, I was like four, and I remember like we put her, we had her put down because she had um, a hip problem, and like I think I remember like my dad saying he was gonna take her to the groomers, and then like he came home and like she wasn't there, and like I was, I was like, I was like, what happened to Sammy? And he was like, oh, she like got really sick on the way to the groomers, and like she she had to like be put down or whatever, and like I don't remember being like upset about, like I don't remember having a feeling about it because I was like four. But then we got another dog, like, right away. But when my dog Juno died, like, I mean, I was 16. And, like, that was, like, I mean, I hadn't lost, like, any grandparents or, like, any important family. And, like, oh, my God, when Juno died, I was, like, that was so bad. Like, I, that was, that's the only time I've ever seen my dad cry was, like, when we had to take him to be put down. And, like, that was just, ugh. I was, like, so sad forever. And, like, oh, so bad. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I've heard a lot of times that people say that uh, the death of a beloved dog is like harder than the death of a distant grandparent or something like that, that it hits you harder for some reason. I, I still have dreams about my dog Juno. Like I'll have a dream that like he is alive and like, um, like, and it's been, I was like 16, so it's been like five years and I'm like, nope, <laughs> it's not there anymore. Aww. Yeah, I've, I've read that there, the grief is, harder to process in a lot of ways because not only like the the kind of emotional proximity but also um the fact that there's less consistent space at least in western culture made for the mourning of a pet than there is for a human being so um you know you can be emotionally as devastated or it's you know as as profound a loss but the kind of yeah, the space that's made in culture for it is less consistent. So you, you know, you say like, oh, I lost my dog. And some people understand what that means. And then other people are like, oh, just get another one. You know, so it's, there's less of a, um, like that's a consistent allowance yeah. for, for mourning. Um, so it can be harder to process sort of on an individual yeah. basis. Like same with when I had to put my rats down, like the first one, um, when I had to put Moscato down, like I cried, I cried the whole Uber ride home. And I like, I felt like kind of, it was like, it was a rat. Like she, you know, she lived for like two years and stuff. And it was just like, I was so sad. And like, and it was like weird. Cause like, if someone was like, oh, like you lost a pet and then you have to be like, oh yeah, but well, she was a rat. And then they're like, oh, like, why are you sad? You know, it's like, but it was just like, so sad for me to, that's also like, I, I'm a little nervous with Penelope because hedgehogs live about like four to eight years, but I'm like, 
Another reason I don't want to get rats again is they don't live very long and I get very attached, I've learned. <laughs> so like, there are these like very emotional attachments. Like, uh, I don't know, like I've only, I've only ever lost like one close family member and like I wasn't even that close with my grandpa. Like my, my brother was a lot closer with him. And so like, I was very sad when he died, but like it wasn't as heartbreaking, which sounds terrible, I guess, like as like when I lost my dog or like, had to put my rats down, I guess. Well, I mean, it's maybe if it's like a pet is kind of like present in your day, in your daily life, it's kind of a thing that's always there that you can, at least with a dog, I think you can kind of, uh, kind of depend on for emotional support. I don't know if that's true with many people's grandparents or something like that, but it's like, a, I guess it's a, maybe miss you lose a piece of your immediate environment in a way I suppose I think that's true and I think also that at least for me like there was a sense because two of my dogs just passed on their own and then the third one I had to put down because she had cancer and she's still I mean like I was close to all of them but I think the fact that it was my decision ultimately made it like that much more devastating and I mean she was she was basically comatose you know so it wasn't like I was like I don't want to deal with this anymore but like it was um uh, there's a sense of of, like guilt or whatever that comes with it and I think too even when that's not the case that with with humans ideally you have um like a sense of closure or you you can achieve a sense of closure and I know that's not always the case either but it's a possibility whereas I think like you can't like confirm with your dog that they're like okay with you know I don't know it's just yeah. Man, this took a really dark turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, mortality, it's a bitch. Anyway, uh, do you guys have anything more on pets, or should we uh, move on to animal intelligence? I have five dogs and a cat. Well, that's like a fucking herd. <laughs> yeah. Dogs, dogs are amazing. And cocker. Yeah, they're the best. Will you tell us their names? I love their names. Uh, Noodle, Teddy, Mogwai, Big Boy, and Buna. Thanks, I speak the cat. <laughs> my friend that I'm moving in with, once my lease is up, she has a foster dog, and she wants to adopt him. Um, he's in, like, a court case right now or whatever over, like, sad things with animals. But I am very excited because he is... The, he's a big, like, Great Dane, so he just wants to, like, lay on you, and it's I'm very excited to live with him. Nice. So, yeah, Yuck, is it having five dogs, like, isn't that, doesn't that get, like, is it a lot of work to have five dogs? It can be, yeah, but there's also lots of fun having five dogs, and they're always able to entertain themselves with each other. They can get very funny for the way they act sometimes. Did you plan to have five dogs? Like, did you get them, like, all around the same time or was it like kind of because they're all the same type of dog right um well three of them are the children of the mother noodle um one's a rescue okay okay yeah so okay that makes sense yeah so she had 11 puppies and um two died and we and uh we sold six and that left uh, flea left over, so I kept the flea dogs, and uh, oh, there were four dogs left over. So um, the stud's parents took the fourth one, 
and um, I kept three of them. Mogwai, which is the one which I had to feed myself for ages because he was a lunt, and the two other ones, Big Boy and Buna. So is it like you said that they're able to entertain each other, so it's like a pack kind of? Yeah. Do they have like a hierarchy like, where um, one is the alpha or leader or something and the others are subservient to it? Not really, because um, there wasn't really the an alpha and a dog pack is normally the parents and um, because we only have one of them. Um, Ludo um, just didn't have the same effect on them because she wasn't as interested in her kids as I was, so um, it didn't really form that way, so instead like, they're all just sort of like equals, but um, like if one of them has something, sometimes they'll get jealous and try and take it off them, and so forth. So are you the alpha then? <laughs> well, alphas aren't really the only just payments. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm kind of like payments, I'm kind of like a payment shit. Especially to like uh, the younger ones. Like Nudo is quite independent, and um, and Teddy just is a love bug. I thought Teddy was. I thought Teddy was the dad. I don't know why I thought that. Are dogs common pets in Finland? Like, do people? A lot of people have dogs, or is it? Nah. Yep, they're pretty common, uh, especially in rural rural areas. Like, they're quite common yeah and even in the city you see a lot of people walking their dogs we don't have reindeers or polar bears here i mean we do have reindeers but they're not yes. like a common pet well, yeah i didn't imagine that well isn't it reindeer is mostly the uh the, the sam uh i feel i'm gonna sound really ignorant the sami people the Sa- sami the yeah, indigenous I don't know how it's pronounced that... in english but it's sam samalize it Sami yeah. in Finnish, uh, yeah, they're, it, they're like the people of Lapland, I guess, the indigenous people of uh, sort yeah. of this area. And they they're, do the they're big into the reindeer really. keeping, and yeah. there's uh, people who keep reindeers in Lapland for meat and stuff, and tourism as well, but it's, yeah, I just <laughs> wanted to make a little joke about the stereotype of, like, Finland having reindeers a lot. I recently learned that reindeer are just caribou, like a different, they're like, or like not like just caribou, but like they're, they're, they're like a different breed of caribou or something, something like that. They're, they're basically caribou. Like I thought they were like a very, very distinct species, but they're not. <laughs> yeah, I think they're, at least they look very similar. So maybe they like migrated over there when there was the land richer in the ice age or something into the Americas, I mean. I think they're quite similar. So, I guess... Wait, no, they're actually the same animal. According to the FDA, reindeer and caribou are the same animal and are a member of the deer family. They're just called reindeer in Europe, and in America, they're called caribou. Oh, okay. Wow. (laughs) Reindeers are better than people. (laughs) I've actually got quite a complicated relationship with reindeers because... My name, Petri, is the version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in Finnish, and like the other kids would sing that to me and bully me in kindergarten. So reindeers are a little triggering for me. 
no. Wait, what do you mean it's the version of... Well, like the song Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is Petri yeah. Punakuono in Finnish. Translated version, version of the song. So I guess we could move on from pets to <laughs> <laughs> to um, animal animal intelligence and behavior. Like I guess in terms of behavior, I was thinking about something we discussed earlier. What separates animals from humans, and like um, and intelligence is obviously a big part of that because we as humans like to think of ourselves as the most intelligent animal, and and think that we are the only ones with culture, with language, with buildings, with tools, but obviously there are some animals that do have those sort of distinct features as well. Yeah, so I actually have a lot of, I had to do a unit on this when I was um, studying whaling, because like people say that like, you know, like they're like, oh, dolphins are like the smartest animal, you know, outside of humans or whatever. And there's like a lot of debate because there's no way to like actually determine how smart an animal is like you can't even for humans there's like no universal test to be like yes this means that you are smart and you are not as smart so like they do it but, in, they do uh, with dolphins being the second isn't it because um their brain to mass is second after humans yes so that's like one way to do it so like you can do like the brain to body weight and like that would give them like so like that, like humans have the highest brain to body weight and then dolphins have the second highest and then it's chimps, elephants and baleen whales. But um, if you, you can also like test based on like problem solving and stuff. And like if you test based on like how, how much their problem solving is like resembles to humans, like do- dolphins actually like rank like fourth below. I don't know what this animal is. It's a langur. Um, it's like langur mink ferret. And like you wouldn't really think of those animals as like. Is it like a weasel? Yeah, I think it, I think it's part of like the ermine, whatever. But so like, there's no like way to kind of be like, yes, like this means you are smart. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm surprised in problem solving octopuses aren't near the top. Langurs are monkeys. Oh, okay. Uh, in my notes, I have if you are um, good at problem solving, that's usually like a strong trait in carnivorous animals, and by this standard, dolphins and porpoises may be more intelligent and that's also why like foxes and like cats are like considered smarter than like cows or like sheep because like they're prey animals i guess yeah so problem solving would that be in sort of a lab environment where they would like have different sorts of boxes with levers and buttons to push to get like a cookie or something yeah i think something like this or, or like that or like how how they like figure out a situation and like how a human would figure out a situation and then like how that compares I guess is um where that list that I gave with the langur mink ferret dolphin monkey cat rat squirrel so they're good at puzzles <laughs> yeah I think I think that's what it is testing and so that's like you know if an animal is good at puzzles does that mean it's smart like I don't know because <laughs> like in the wild I tend to think of like uh, more sort of I guess having more complicated plans, like I think wolves and dolphins and other sort of group hunting animals have this, like they will, a group of dolphins will drive a school of fish to like another group of dolphins that are waiting for them. And I think wolves do that as well. And maybe like, 
uh, lions too, but I don't know it, if that's intelligence or planning in a way, or if it's just instinct, or can you say that they've made a plan or act, and are acting it out? Dolphin. I used to love dolphins when I was little. Like I desperately wanted to be a marine biologist and like study them and swim with them and stuff. And the more I learn about them, they are truly horrifying creatures. Have you seen <laughs> the pink dolphins that like live in the Amazon River or whatever? Yeah, they're yeah. freaky looking. Yeah, they are. But they're like they keep sex slaves and stuff. Like dolphins are <laughs> dolphins are messed up. They, they are salt lives. Up. They do, they do. <laughs> <laughs> They do, they do, and that's that. That's not okay. Yeah, um, a lot of animal sexual behavior is quite disturbing when you think about it. But yeah, I guess there's this tendency to think of animals and nature as kind of pure and good, and like uh, humanity as like a corrupting influence on it. But I don't know how you square like morality with animals and stuff like that when you look at the like. Uh, for example, the sexual behavior or like violence and stuff like that. It's just, but I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's like I look, I think about ducks when I think about that because it's like the female oh, duck yeah. has literally evolved so that it's harder for the male duck to mate with her. Yeah. And it, it's like, again, it comes down to this like culture versus like, is that how we tell what a human versus an animal is? Because like in human culture, like that's bad. But in, we see it with an animal and we're like, well, it's just survival. It's just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, do they have an option to do it differently? I don't know, because I suppose some animals do have sort of like more, I don't know, would we say civilized or gentle ways of mating as well? But like, that's just the way that the ducks have been doing it for eons, I suppose, and it seems to be working for them, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Or it's like, I think like silverback gorillas, when like a new male takes over, like if uh, he like in, like ingratiates himself into the society, like he kills all the all the boys, because he's like, yeah. nah, <laughs> gotta be my well, offspring. Lions, when a lion takes over the pride, they kill all the cubs from the previous, yeah. yeah. So Simba got off cheap, is what I learned today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, the other day I learned also that penguins uh, regularly practice necrophilia. Yeah, I read that as well. I think oh. it's something about like they, like they mistake the lying, the corpse that's lying down for like a female in a submissive position. <laughs> Why did you have to tell me that? Like, <laughs> I, 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 I was listening to a podcast about penguins, and like I, I did learn they're not actually monogamous. It's just like usually they tend to like go back to the same places and they're like, eh, if this is working, it's working, but like whatever. And that was a little disappointing because I love penguins, but yeah. I did not need to know the necrophilia right. thing. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I think like one of the first polar explorer guys, like he was really upset by the behavior of penguins and he like kept those notes out of his, the things he published and it oh, only no. came out like years later that he was like traumatized by what he saw. He bottlerized the penguin behavior. Yeah. Ugh, I really want to be like one of those people who just like lives in Antarctica during the summer and like counts penguins. Like, it just sounds like such a great job. Yeah, but how would you tell them apart though? I don't know. I think you tag them. 
but like I remember I listened to this podcast this nature podcast once where they literally just like interviewed this old man who's like for like 40 years just been counting penguins this is like his job is he just goes to Antarctica and counts penguins uh, living the life Turns out there's just like eight penguins and he's just been counting them over and over again. <laughs> they just walk away and then walk back and he counts them again. Oh, here's one I thought about like in concerning bird mating behaviors. Like one thing that humans might be unique in is sort of adornment and wearing clothes and wearing like the skins of other animals as well. Like, But I guess like are we the only ones that are concerned with aesthetics? Well, like... Peng- going back to penguins, or at least I don't know if all penguins do this, but like at least uh, I want to say emperor penguins, but I don't, I can't off the top of my head. They do the rock thing where it's like who can build the best like nest for their mate, where they like bring a bajillion rocks. Yeah, those are the smaller ones. I can't think of the name right now. Oh, but they're like are the, they the jackass ones? ones? Are they the ones in <laughs> no, South but Africa? I want to hear more about those. I did a report on those when I was in second grade because they were called jackass penguins. <laughs> Maybe they're called fairy penguins, the ones in Australia. Maybe those are ones that do that. But, um, yeah, so, like, they... It's like, oh, Adelis. Yeah, but, like, so, like, they... Technically, it's, like, who can make the best nest. But that's, again, it's more kind of, like, to keep the egg warm. But it is, like, how they'll kind of, like, determine the mate being pretty nice. Well, there are, there are lots of birds that are very aesthetic based aren't they right like so they're the ones that do the dances yeah the birds um, of paradise yeah and then the one there's one that like has to clear an area of the forest i can't think of, i watched this whole thing about it where it was like if a leaf falls he like freaks out and runs over and clears it because when yeah. the female comes his area has to be completely clear she's like mm, no i think that might be from david attenborough's planet earth series where there's one bird of paradise who's like preparing his dance area dance oh, arena the for or the stage for the, the mating display i think you might be right yeah and then they do this like incredibly sophisticated thing but i love it i don't know if it was an editing thing or what but like yeah when they cut back to her she's i like, think i guess yeah. <laughs> like, i think also when they they build their nests i don't know i think birds can see color really well if i can remember correctly like they see more colors than we do and so i think like they they the nest is partially just like oh this thing looks pretty and i want to put it in my nest like i don't know if that's like a mating thing or they just are like that's pretty and i want this like pink yarn to go be in my nest yeah because magpies are infamous for stealing like shiny things and putting it in their nest i don't know like why they do that yeah i don't know if that's a mating behavior or not like why would they be evolved to find shiny things interesting or like like valuable or desirable but yeah like i guess like if animals could wear clothes like if they had the like capability to like manufacture you know like a leather or like the hide of another animal like if it's evolutionary like like humans wear clothes because we don't have hair everywhere so like we need to regulate our body temperature so I guess, like, most animals don't have, like, a need, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess hermit crabs do, like, they oh, yeah. use the shell of a, some kind of other creature to hide in, and... Yeah, I guess most animals don't sort of live in an environment where they would need the extra warmth or the protection from the elements. They just migrate, maybe. Yeah, or they, like, hibernate. Yeah, I've seen some footage of an octopus using like the shells of some 
clans as armor as well, but that's, that was more of a temporary thing, using tools rather than like using them to adorn itself. But yeah, yeah, I guess the I read that the bearded vulture also like bathes in like red earth to make itself look more red. I don't know what that's about. If it's a like a uh-huh. mating display or if it's just I don't know. Maybe they like the color red. Yeah. Like I was, I was gonna say maybe like because pigs like to like roll around in mud, but that's more to cool off, I think. But I, I feel like there's other animals that will cover themselves with like naturey things. It's <laughs> like greener. a sun, the sunscreen, right? Like hippos yeah. and elephants, I think too. Like use mud or dust as like a sunscreen. So I guess if um, you like break it down to its basic, like what clothes are for humans are as like the basic, you know, like protection, then I guess animals sometimes do that too. <laughs> sea urchins will collect things and sort of pass it from spine to spine. And so like if you see, you can see them like pick something up and put it on top of themselves. But I think that's more like camouflage than it is aesthetic um, choice maybe. So how about like, um, do animals have morality or like, um, I guess, sense of justice or right and wrong or something like that? I know dogs don't, right? Because dogs can't feel, like, remorse or guilt, I think, right? Really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's, like, like so they did, like, a study, and it's, like, they know, like, if they're punished, they feel bad about being punished, so they, like, don't want to do the behavior again, but they don't, like, feel bad for the thing that they did, if that makes sense. I'm Maybe really that's good been at faking disproven. it because my dog's like... Yeah, it, that might have been disproven, for all I know, but, like, that's what I remember like learning or like reading about but I'm not a, a, a dog expert I mean if that's if that's the case though then it's that much more admirable how well they mirror our own behaviors and responses and things like that right because like if I yell at my dog like they will sulk for quite some time and I'll you know make eye contact with one that's gotten in trouble and they'll kind of like slink off you know so it's like yeah, they, they clearly look, understand look like they're like, ashamed yeah yeah like they understand it's like how they're supposed to react even if they're not necessarily internalizing it which is, is actually more interesting on some level but then it's like also like how much do we project our own feelings onto the animals you know it's like oh the dog like because like you know you said you're like surprised maybe dogs can't feel guilt and it's like okay well I'll like like I do this all the time and it's like you know I humanize animals especially pets but it's like you sometimes you have to step back and be like no they they are an animal like they they have yeah. a different uh mentality I guess than we do so I I don't personally think that animals like think can, can think like right from wrong because I don't think they have like a sense of morality because I feel like morality is a very cultural thing but they can feel bad uh, like they can be upset about feeling about like being chastised or like being punished and so it's like that's as good as you're gonna get like if that's how you're gonna teach <laughs> an animal like not to do a thing I mean could you suggest that it's maybe the difference between like a human guilt culture versus a human shame culture where like yeah, maybe. the guilt culture is internalized and then the shame culture is just like based on other people's judgment of your behavior right so like dogs yeah, clearly they're clearly receptive to like a human super ego structure right where yeah like, you know? Well, it's like, it's like they, they know what they did is bad, but they don't know why, I guess. Or like, they know that what they did is perceived to be bad, so then they won't do it again. 
like that just sounds like Beowulf to me (laughs) right like you know you get you get ostracized you get kicked out for your behavior like maybe you don't feel bad about it but you don't repeat it because society has told you that that that's outside the acceptable parameters for behavior I mean, like, like I'll did... literally look at my dog and go, that's not acceptable behavior. And he goes, like, oh, and, like, leaves the room. <laughs> like, so, I mean, they, they clearly, yeah, I don't, I mean, I guess I don't know how internalized it is, but the, the behavior I, is. Yeah. I feel like I remember watching a documentary or listening to a podcast about monkeys, and, like, there was, like, one monkey in the zoo group of, like, or chimpanzees or whatever. I don't remember what kind of animal, like, primate. But, like, it w- he was, like, not liked by the other monkeys because like he didn't act within like the social norms of the monkeys so i guess there is like this like is some sort of like, uh, kind of uh, code of behavior at least yeah something like that but i i can't remember like what the deal is so because i feel like you don't usually see like unless it's like a movie you know or something where like the animal a pack animal like is rejected by the pack I, I think it's do, maybe but... like maybe a runt would be rejected or like yeah. a sickly animal or something like that. But but like not for anything are... that they did. I have heard I mean, that are... ravens have these groups and that they will like exile uh, a raven that's stealing from the others and they will like mm, they won't play with it or associate with it. I don't have there a source are... on this right at this moment, but <laughs> I have heard this. There are monkeys in India, I think, like in the temple structures that actually have like an inherited caste system. So like the the monkeys that are born to the higher ranking monkeys are higher ranking from birth and even adult monkeys from like the lower echelons of society will defer to those like infant royal monkeys. Oh, that's um, that's uncomfortable. <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, no. um, but so yeah so like the you know it's based on like who your who your mother is i think it's like a matriarchal structure but like yeah from the from the very beginning like from birth there the social ranking is dictated i think unless there's like some kind of split in the troop like if it gets too big then the then the hierarchy like reshuffles but um but yeah it's like this innate caste structure essentially like i don't know if that's really cool or like really worrying yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I could really go either way, couldn't I? <laughs> um, yeah, it sort of gets into that like the uncomfortable feeling of like how far removed are we from monkeys, and like makes you think about like, oh no, we're just a bunch of monkeys ourselves. Yeah, that's why I put it on the cover of my book. I I will say that like there are a lot of animals that like if they're in trouble they'll like make a call and then other animals will like the other like animals within their species or whatever will like come and try to help them and stuff so i guess there's like a sense of responsibility that you could like you like it, it's like a survival thing also safety like, in numbers pack. at least yeah but like if you want to like anthropomorphize it is like oh i have a responsibility to help this like like whales do this. They have like distress calls that like attract the their relatives to them. Well, they've done studies too that suggest that I think like monkeys and dogs, at least that I'm aware of, can they have a sense of um, like fairness or equity, right? So that if one creature consistently gets more like cookies or grapes or whatever, 
that the other ones will refuse to do the task or like be angry at that, you know, so they can, they have a, at least a sense of quantity oh, um, yeah. and like, and, you know, fair pay and stuff like that, which is. Yeah. Um, there's that video of the capuchin monkey fairness experiment where one uh, monkey is getting grapes for the task and another one yeah. is getting cucumbers for it and the cucumber getting one is like, what the fuck? The, what the fuck? Oh, right. grapes? I have <laughs> seen that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. But I mean, so that, you know, that, that suggests that there's a sense of like, yeah, fairness or, or it's like, I, I, I don't want to be like cynical about it, but it's like, to me, like, even that is like something that you can like break down into like a survival tactic, because, you know, if one member of the group is like weaker, you know, as a, I can't think of the turn of phrase that we use, but like is not pulling their weight, like it's going to pull the whole group down. So, you know, you got to make sure everyone is fed so that everyone can, you know, do their thing or whatever, but like, I don't know. <laughs> but I can see why that would be a motivation to share. Yeah. But I, but I, I feel like the indignation <laughs> of like not being on the receiving end of that equality is, is like a different impulse. Maybe. Yeah, that's fair. That, that. Yeah, I don't know if that's like attributing human emotions and thoughts to them or if it's like that we do share that thing with them. It's hard to distinguish between the two. Yeah. I guess another thing is like awareness of mortality that seems mm-hmm. to be like at least in a lot of like literature and art it's like this commonly repeated thing that we're the only thing that knows it's gonna die and that's like at the base of all our neurosis and stuff like that but I guess uh, at least elephants they do grieve yeah. their pack members who die and I feel like they have an understanding of what's happening there. Yeah, I remember I was watching, I mean, it was like a Disney nature documentary about an elephant. And um, his name was Jomo. He was very cute. And um, like the, the the matriarch of the, the pack, like she was like not going to make it to the rest of the trip. And like, I, I don't, I, nature documentaries are like always like, I'm like, I don't know how much of this is like real and how much of this is like I'm telling a story because you know, lemurs or whatever those things that don't actually jump off mountains, but whatever. Yeah, they give them names. <laughs> lemmings, I think. No, lemmings. Lemmings, when, like, they, like, just thought that would make it seem more interesting. Like, they don't actually do that. But, um, so, like, they were, like, talking about how, like, she knew she was gonna die, and so it's, like, the 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 daughter of the matriarch, like, kind of was, like, preparing to, like, take over the, the pack for, like, the, the rest of the walk back to wherever they were migrating from and stuff. And then, like, I think when they walk past like where the spots where they died like someone from the pack has died like i think they will re- they do remember that or something mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think like they go and like okay. caress the bones of their past yeah. relatives yeah. so i feel like most animals have a concept of like i don't know if it's like i'm going to die but like because that uh, then what is the point of having like a survival instinct if you're not worried about the alternative dying? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I think um, crows have funerals too, right? Like, or at least what we understand is funerals. So, like, if one of them dies, all of the crows in the area kind of like gather around and like yell for a little while, and then they all kind of disband and go on with their lives. But that there's a sense of like commemoration or or um, recognition that like this crow is first wild. No, that's interesting. That's kind of like, I get the 
get the urge to just like dismiss that as just like oh they're just checking out like whether there's something dangerous in the area that they should avoid and just like not give them that like human-like behavior and just like think of think of it as a survival thing or something like that yeah are there any instances of like animals like burying the dead animals or anything like covering bodies or stuff no i i only think of like when some animals bury something to keep it for later to eat so maybe mm -hmm. not members of their own social group yeah. i think there's they, there's also i i'm thinking about um animals that bury the placenta like it's a um survival it's like destroying the traces that would otherwise attract a mm -hmm. predator right so like if there's a a scent or something that would so like I'm, which could animals that. do that uh, i don't know let me look i'll see I also, I'm like, there's like the whole, like dogs and cats, like when they, they uh, die, they like hide, you know, like they, they go somewhere to, to hide. And I'm wondering like what that behavior is, if it's like, uh, they don't want to like, like, I'm, I'm wondering like what the, their survival or like what the evolutionary benefit of like leaving the pack is to, mm. to do that in peace. I think it's something like they want to hide so that like a predator doesn't come and get them, but like also... Maybe for like a pack animal, like a dog, like it might be something where it's like they want to like, I don't know, like they don't want to hold back the group, you know, or I don't know. Maybe, like, I, again, it's like a lot of anthropomorphizing and I don't know what. Yeah, is. for sure. I don't know. I feel like maybe it could be like that they go and hide because they know they're weak, that in case they might recover, that they go to a safe place maybe. But I don't know. Could be some group thing as well. I guess um, I at least have this tendency and I feel like it's shared by a lot of other people that think of animals almost as like machines, biological machines that are just exist to eat and breed and sleep and just like keep the species alive and when you see some things like um, animals playing or something like that, that seems like it might not have any purpose. I try to explain it as or like a nature documentary might explain it like oh they're just like training for hunting they're not having fun for fun's sake they're like it's it has to have some sort of like survival or some sort of function that way yeah i definitely get that way with like non-domestic animals or like animals that aren't pets like i'm like i i try not to but i do like think when i think about like the world as a whole i'm like okay like things ex you know i want to get really existential i'm like things exist to breed and like that's it you know so like they 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 eat so they can survive so they can breed but like then i feel very cynical and i like want to be like no when they're babies they just need to be cute and like want to play but i do think that like playing cuz it's the same with humans like like playing like is a way to like develop social skills right yeah so i do think it teaches like cuz like you know puppies play whatever um that like it teaches them like how to interact with one another like it might not be like prep for hunting but it is like how to interact within the group because like I, I think baby elephants they also play and like they um I think they play just to like play but it is a little bit just like it's like a bonding thing too you know yeah I feel what you say about like it feels like it's being overly cynical to always like attribute some sort of utilitarian idea to it like this is this is useful for something, so they're doing it because of that. They're not just doing it just because. 
but I guess you could, could think that way about human human playing as well and something like that. But I don't know. Well, like, it's like you you can also think like eating gives humans endorphins too, and so it's like a motivation to eat, which is like so that they can survive, you know. So like maybe like the playing like it it feels good, you know, like it can release endorphins, and it also has a secondary function of teaching them, you know, like social interaction or something you know I mean that's true for kids too right like yeah I mean I, I think it's I would suggest that it's very rare for human children to play especially young children to play just because they're like I want to have fun like they're motivated to practice behaviors or to you know interact socially and negotiate those relationships like I don't I, I don't know that you know they're ever just playing to play like but, you know, you see them, you know, I would not vacuum for fun, but like, here we are, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know, I think it's, I think there's less of a divide in that respect than, than we might suggest, like either utilitarian or, or pleasure-based. I think it's a fusion for, um, for humans as well as animals. Yeah, I can understand that. Maybe it just feels like, I don't know, reductive sometimes to, like, reduce it to like you're only doing this because your genes are telling you to do it and it's only because of this and we're all just machines following these directives that we have no part in ourselves yeah i that's why like because like if i start going down that path with like animals then i eventually come to humans and then i'm just like okay i need to stop thinking (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like too too existential what is the purpose of life there is none you know (laughs) Yeah, I, guess I mean, like, I think it's, I think it's a feedback loop, right? Produce. Like, I, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's survival-driven, but I think that there's a motivation for survival that is beyond just, like, existing, right? I mean, that sounds very kind of... But, I mean, I do think that the the pleasure of relationships or the pleasure of interaction or the pleasure of accomplishment or however, like, I, I think that that's as intrinsic as like just the need to do those things i don't i don't know i I think that's also why like humans have the natural tendency to like project their feelings onto animals because it's like we want animals lives to mean more than being like a machine because if their lives mean more then our lives mean more yeah i can definitely feel that i have a relationship with the crows in our backyard like I've been feeding them especially since quarantine started like they would um, come to the front yard when I was taking the kids to school because they knew that I would throw all the goldfish out of the car seats and so that's how (laughs) that's how our relationship began Um, but they learned what time we went to school and so like when the goldfish would appear on the driveway and then when we stopped going to school in in March um, they started coming to the backyard because we would be out there playing instead of in the front yard going like into the car and so I started feeding them, I guess they really like dog food. So I would put like a scoop of dog food and I started calling them the same way. And now when I call, I hear like all over the neighborhood, I hear them like yelling to each other <laughs> that the food is out and then they'll all show up and they take turns eating on the wall and stuff. And um, there's one that will actually sit on my roof and call in like a very specific way to me until I come out and feed him. It's just like, it's really weird how that relationship has evolved in a, a relatively short time. Um, but I, like, I'm not really sure whether they've trained me or whether I've trained them, which is kind of an <laughs> uncomfortable question. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I guess ravens 
and Crows and Corvids in, in general are sort of like very smart birds and have held that sort of fascination for people throughout history and like I guess you can even teach them to speak sometimes or mimic well they yeah they can recognize faces also so they like know they'll like there's been experiments I think where like a bunch of people put them like a bunch of researchers put the crows in cages and then like eventually like release them and then they like went back the next year and all of the crows that had like been in the cage were like no 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 to the researchers oh. that like had, had been there before they were like we are not coming near you <laughs> oh no they did that one too where they would put on like a monster mask or whatever and just chase the 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 flock and then left them alone for like a generation and then went out wearing the mask and all of the children of the crows that they had terrorized freaked out when they saw the mask even though there was no direct interaction so like they had been taught to fear that Hmm. weird looking face or whatever oh that's really interesting like how do they transmit that information yeah that's a really really yeah (laughs) i guess it comes down to that stuff we talked about at the beginning of this segment with the language like like we talked about warning cries for different things but and I suppose like yeah a lot of language is body language for humans as well but like I guess that like generational uh, sort of passing down information through the generations is something that's often thought of as a human trait but yeah, I don't know how you would do it without having like symbols like words for things yeah to like complex ideas that can't be shown like maybe yeah like I, I don't know how you pass down information without well so <laughs> so one of the the sort of emerging bridges between nature and nurture is that field of epigenetics um which I just like had to research for a, a class that I help teach but it's fascinating because they have actual Um, epigenetics is basically inheritable changes in the way that a gene expresses itself without um, structural changes to the DNA. So it's essentially like pieces of the DNA get like switched on and off as far as how they express um, in replication, but the DNA itself doesn't change. So it's not a mutation or an evolution, but um, they've detected epigenetic links with trauma so that there's um, evidence that like memory like sort of a genetic memory of a traumatic event can be passed down uh things like drug addiction can also cause epigenetic changes that can be transmitted in the reproductive cells so it's it's possible like there is you know sort of evidence to suggest that something like that could be transmitted epigenetically as far as like a a rapidly expressing evolution um that catches up a lot faster than like actual DNA changes. So they did this experiment where I guess they, the, the guy would shock a generation of mice. So like every time the mice um, smelled a certain smell, he would like shock their feet. So they got to be very anxious whenever they smelled that smell. And then I think it was like two generations later, not only were the descendants of those mice more alert to that smell without ever having had the the accompanying negative stimulus but also their like olfactory areas and the receptors for that smell were more developed in the descendants of the mice that he had shocked which i thought was super trippy oh yeah that's um, fascinating as fuck right (laughs) like that whole idea of genetic memory is like one of the 
like most interesting things in biology I've heard. Yeah, yeah. But so maybe that's maybe that's part of it is that like we're sort of just starting to realize how these very rapid adaptations take place on an epigenetic level um, that I guess maybe give the DNA like a, or the evolution a chance to catch up while kind of putting like a, a post-it note on the thing that needs to change much more quickly. Related to that, I have this idea about like common phobias that people have for spiders and snakes and stuff like that. Like, but at least with snakes, it seems to be almost like an inherited trait in humans. Like, there's this reaction that people sometimes have to snakes, where they will see a snake and freeze before even consciously realizing that they've seen a snake. So it's like it's in your it's not it's like at, at the lower level of cognition i guess it's not it's your <laughs> lizard brain that sees the snake and freezes i guess yeah yeah i they've done yeah experiments with little kids where like they'll give them like a fluffy bunny and they're like oh fluffy bunny and then they show them the snake and they're like uh fuck no thanks like but they have no yeah again like no kind of negative pre-associations of their own but yeah it's like a it's like an inherited when i was uh for my 30th birthday shut up um we <laughs> we went and stayed at a like an animal sanctuary and they had it was animals mostly that had been rescued from like per, like movies and stuff you know so they had like lions and elephants and stuff like that and um they had hyenas too and you could stay in like kind of a, a glamping tent overnight like on their property so you could like hear the lions roaring and stuff and um in the middle of the night one of the hyenas started like losing its mind over something and i woke up in full flight mode like I had been sound asleep and as soon as that hyena started screaming or whatever it was doing like my heart was racing and I was sweating and I was like just it was crazy and I'm like mm. as far as I know I've never had a negative experience with a hyena um but clearly there was some kind of like some sort of know. memory in your blood came awake yeah it was crazy oh. it was really intense okay well, but cool. had you seen the lion king before going on this <laughs> like, <laughs> yes but i can't say that you know bonsai or shenzi or ed ever elicited quite that level of terror in me <laughs> oh. yeah hyenas are really like they feel sort of demonic to me like the cackling and like the way oh. they look they're like hellhounds in a way like they're a very sort of monstrous type of animal to me yeah i i completely agree i think it's because they're they're sort of like in between a cat and a dog. Like they're very difficult to categorize even like morphologically. You know, I mean, you look at them and you're like, what the hell is that? And then, yeah, then they make these kind of human-esque sounds that are very, yeah, very demonic. Once again, apparently my, my genetic makeup agrees with you because it was really crazy. I guess we could talk a little about like that idea of like separating animals into good animals and bad animals or evil animals that we have in culture like I suppose like these predators and like creatures of the night have traditionally been associated with evil like for example demons often have like bat's wings and stuff like that and angels are like have pure white wings of birds instead and I mean Mm, I guess what kind of good and evil separations between animals do you think there are? I think one of them is definitely like the predator versus the prey. Like 
most prey animals, especially non, well, I guess, yeah, I was going to say non-carnivorous, but I guess all carnivorous animals are technically predators to an extent, but like, you know, like, okay, you got like cows, sheep, like all of those are seen as like very either neutral or like pure because they don't have to kill, I guess, is like probably like the cultural mentality for humans as to like why they're not necessarily portrayed as like a bad thing. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think cows are sort of seen as sympathetic and sheep as well, like, at least in Christianity, which is at the root of a lot of our culture, like, sheep being a sheep is kind of like a good thing to be meek and mild and stuff like that, and to be led around by a shepherd, but, and then, I suppose, like, a lot of those, like, evil animals would be things that were threats in more traditional cultures like wolves and lions and bears. Well, I guess lions are kind of a kind of the thought of as a noble and courageous animal in a way that it's a symbol of kings in a way. So it's not maybe lions aren't seen as evil as much, but wolves definitely. Although I guess recently there's been this like wolves have been also been portrayed as more heroic or I guess like noble wolves. Is something that's in the culture as well but I think a lot of that is like a brand like a branding thing so it's like um like vultures vultures are always portrayed as like evil but then like people were killing too many vultures because like I get you know it's like this like do the the value of a vulture versus the value of like I don't know some other animal that lives in that area you know it's like okay well we're gonna see the vulture as like more like less sympathetic I guess but so then there's like a problem where there's like not enough vultures to clean up you know like all the the carcasses and like whatever so there's like a lot of attempts at like rebranding like wolves wolves is like they 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 literally like went through a rebranding because there were people were over hunting them so much that like the national park service in Yosemite or whatever like had to be like no 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 actually wolves are this and you know there's a lot of it is like how how the culture portrays them is not like I guess I don't I don't know and this is probably much more of a modern thing but like once we've kind of figured out that like humans have this impact on the ecosystem we've kind of had to change how we portray animals I guess if that makes sense that's happening with sharks too like I think that there's much more of a concerted effort to be like Sharks aren't trying to maul you. Like, we shouldn't kill them by the million. You know, yeah. I I think, I don't know, I'm sort of thinking about that saying that familiarity breeds contempt, right? That, like, I think it has, or it's sort of the more modern kind of meta, meta conceptions aside, like, I think, you know, sort of throughout human history, um, it's it's been a question of, like, how much of a competition we were in with them and like how how we were doing in that competition right so like I mean I I think that wolves in ancient Greece for example were like much more of a direct threat to livestock and livelihood and and you know the person in a pastoral society um and lions were in you know when they were when there were Asian lions right so like that I think but if they become more abstract, um, then it's easier to invest or reinvest a cultural symbolism without having that kind of reality of like, this thing might actually eat me sort of imprinted on 
that animal. And I'm not, I don't, I feel like I'm not explaining this, but yeah, it, for example, it makes sense. like that, like something that's more distant and exotic, you might think of it more sympathetically or think of it as a, like a noble or virtuous thing. But if it's eating your trash, it's harder right. to do that. Right. Yeah. Like coyotes, like I, you know, I mean, coyotes are ambivalent, but they're, you know, one of the sacred animals in, in Native American tradition, but now coyotes are like, you know, trash, Pest trash, dog, you know, yeah, yeah, um, because they're, they don't have a, like a natural place anymore, I guess, I don't know, it's sort of a lot of different ideas all rolled into one, but I'm thinking too about like bats and stuff, like we don't compete with bats, but they inhabit very effectively a realm in which we are at a severe disadvantage. So the the dark, right? So anything that I think like operates better in the dark than we do makes us uncomfortable because we're disadvantaged in whatever occupational competition there is oh, in, yeah, that, we are in that area. Day animals and night animals are uncanny naturally because they like, we are disadvantaged when we go in the dark so sort of like those hyena noises or coyote noises are going to be scary to us because they're associated with that i think so yeah because like yeah like we can't see as well we can't sense as well like i i mean that's why for me at least like that's why i find sea creatures so frightening because like i can't breathe underwater you know (laughs) like i'm screwed if this thing comes after me because just and you know on a very sort of playing field level like i'm already at like a major disadvantage so Um, would you say that you think that some kind of sea creature is the most monstrous creature you can think of um it's certainly for me i think it's the most anxiety producing just because the realm is so foreign the realm is so alien like i i have no resources or capabilities in the ocean whereas like if a lion is chasing me like that's gonna be really scary but i can climb a tree or like throw a can at climb it trees too. oh well, why I did know, you but... i didn't know that <laughs> they can't they yeah they can they don't like to i think as much as like leopards do but i think they can if they have to that's um, interesting yeah i think I'll, probably I'll, like I'll... like the movie jaws was very popular and effective monster movie because it's that big monster shark in the water and it drags you down and you can't really fight it in any way i think that's like a very anxiety and fear inducing definitely yeah yeah like a lot of it also comes down to like the like the the uh superficial look of the animal because like i remember i was listening to this um ologies podcast about gar which is a type of fish that um lives in like rivers and stuff and people kind of like hunt them a lot and they're just kind of like whatever fish that you just like don't care about like you don't eat them they just like they're like past they're seen as pests but like they're actually like very like important for the ecosystem and they're also like very interesting um like evolutionary wise because they're like really ancient and so it's like the guy um that she was interviewing was like you know you can put like a cute bunny and be like say or panda you know like save the pandas because pandas look cute but you can't like have this like weird fucking crocodile looking fish (laughs) and try to get people interested in it because it's weird you know it's not a cute panda charismatic megafauna i think yeah exactly yeah i wonder if that has something to do with how similar or how much they resemble animals that we've like either made friends with or or kind of made a, a peace accord with or what you know what I mean like so anything with fur I feel like we're like okay well you know dogs are okay and cats are okay and like 
cows and horses are pretty cool and you know anything with four legs or you know but like oh, yeah, I, we don't I can... we don't really have a relationship with anything with like leathery wings or or fangs you know what i mean so like maybe that's it's almost like the utilitarian comfort of it where we're like, okay, like I kind of understand how quadrupeds work just from like an evolutionary standpoint, but like, I don't really fucking get snakes, man. What the hell are they up to? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, maybe it's part part of the body language as well. Like it might be more similar to us because we have a more recent common ancestor, I guess. And I, yeah, I definitely do relate more to mammals than other types of creatures. Yeah. That's interesting that it's a body language. Like, I never really thought about that, but yeah, I, like I don't, I don't know what. Yeah, I don't. I like, mean, it's I've heard very that difficult to communicate without arms, you know. A, I've heard that people have a easier time like relating and interacting with dogs because they have sort of a similar body language to ours. But I don't know if that's sort of being bred into them or if it's something that's innate in wolves. It's probably both. I mean, I, I'm sure it's reinforced through domestication and breeding and so like kind of what we're talking about how they mirror like the expected reaction or the reaction that that we you know project on them but yeah that's that's actually really i never really thought about that before but yeah i mean i think like all of the animals that we have relationships with with the exception of maybe like birds have a very similar sort of basic profile right like i don't right. know right but it's like well, even birds, birds walk on two legs. And That's true. Domestication tends to um, lead to features that tend to affect humans. So, um, like in domestication of foxes, only ones ever to be properly domesticated by the Soviets. Even they started to develop more baby-like faces as time went on and other sort of methane techniques, so it does seem to be part of a process of domestication that um, animals go through that causes them to be of these sort of features. Yeah, I yeah. have an article about that. It's like, because they need to appeal themselves to us, so they like have to be cute. It's like with babies, you know, like baby animals and baby humans, like if they were kind of weird looking, like we probably wouldn't be as inclined to um take care of them which sounds terrible but it's like that is like an appeal that they have yeah no it's an evolutionary like three things it's um large eyes round features and helpless movements that's like the (laughs) three features of cuteness (laughs) i'm picturing (laughs) like some some amorphous creature like making those things and it's 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 trouble i'm just picturing a turtle on its back Cause that's really cute. Cause it can't flip over. Yeah, I guess it like makes you feel. I sometimes feel this feels like 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 a cynical thing as well. Like just like reducing like the feeling of finding something cute to like evolutionary those machine like things again. But is it just like we're kind of programmed to take care of babies and find them cute and like wanting to protect them and that sort of transfers over to puppies and kittens as well. Or did babies evolve to look like that? Because well, no, they yeah. Human babies are weird looking though. Like I, I, anybody who says otherwise is lying. Oh, I like, know. They, I'm very very cute babies, but they are also very weird looking. Like yeah, yeah. My friends, my friends are always like Abby. If I ever have a baby, like I, you're not allowed to say anything about my baby because. <laughs> 
sometimes I see ugly babies and I like tell my friends I'm like yeah I saw an ugly baby and they're like what the heck and I'm like I wouldn't say it to the parents face but like ugly babies exist like yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess babies are sacred in a way that you're not allowed to blaspheme them in that way but it's I mean I've noticed it even with my own kids because just as like you know I take like a billion pictures of them and so I'll look at pictures from when they were like I thought they were like the cutest thing and I'm like man that kid was weird you know what I mean <laughs> but like didn't make them any less cute but it, it's a there is certainly like a like a you know hormonal blindness or whatever you want to call it with like your own kid where you're like, oh, like everything you do is amazing yeah totally yeah exactly yeah I don't know I mean I wonder if like I wonder if dinosaurs had existed alongside humans and we had learned how to like plow with them or something or kept like corrals full of dinosaurs like if we wouldn't be scared of snakes and lizards as much as people tend to be like if scaly things would have the same kind of like you know emotional cred with us that mammals do or whether it's just yeah i tend to think that it's probably with reptiles it's just that snakes were so threatening and so dangerous to us that it's become that like um, a very powerful emotional response to snakes because the because of the venom probably like that it is something that you really want to avoid mm-hmm. yeah like i think snakes can be really cute but like um whenever i'm in arizona like i've been hiking before and like i just hear a sound that sounds like a rattlesnake and i book it i'm like i am out of here I don't care if the rattlesnake doesn't exist. Like, I'm not going to stay here. I, I literally have run down a mountain before because I thought I saw a rattlesnake. <laughs> I was walking my dog. And, it, Peter, I guess this speaks to your point about how, like, you can see a snake out of the corner of your eye and your lizard brain realizes it before. But, like, I distinctly remember seeing something on the side of the path that we were on, like, scooping her up and and kind of diving away from whatever it was before I even looked more closely to realize that it was a baby rattlesnake like it wasn't it happened like on the level of muscle memory and and you know kind of neuron rather than like any kind of conscious you know but I did I mean once I was holding her and kind of you know five feet away I kind of peered at what I had not seen and it was a it was in fact a baby rattlesnake but um yeah it was crazy it was like a yeah it was a weird um it is funny, though, that, like, our instinct with reptiles is to, like, run away, whereas, like, um, it's, like, when I was in Alaska once, like, we were on a bike ride and we saw a bear, and, like, you know, like, when you see a bear, like, obviously, like, before we went to Alaska, they're, like, okay, like, how to deal with if you see a bear, and it's, like, when you, you know, so it's, like, with big animals, your your instinct is not to run away, it's, like, to freeze, or just, like, with mammals, I guess, like, like I remember one time I saw some javelinas, when I was like walking to the cat, like a coffee What's place a, in Arizona, it's like a pig, but they're like, yeah, they're kind of like pigs, but they're like kind of they're very aggressive, and they usually like do not hang out around people, so like you are not supposed to go near them. And there was some for some reason they were just like hanging out in like plain sight, you know. And I was like walking to a coffee shop, and it's like we have like a it's like a face off instead of like a book it and run the other way because I don't know, it's like there's the, a different reaction well I think there's a sense sort of an innate sense that we might be able to communicate with a mammal in a way that or like you know find the common ground or something I don't know that there's yeah that there's some kind of 
kinship is maybe a, maybe too strong a characterization, but that there's some kind of mutual understanding that might be available. Whereas, yeah, with a lizard, I'm like, I don't know what you're thinking, and I'm quite sure you don't know what I'm thinking. So let's just yeah. Like I've never seen a scary mammal that's made me run away. Like usually it's like I freeze and then mm-hmm. maybe run away. But like if I see, like I've seen like you know like lizards or whatever, and like I don't, and I think like I don't like little ones. It's like whatever. I think they're cute. But then I see like if I've seen like a big, li- not big, but an, a, a larger size lizard than I'm used to, and I'm like, okay, bye. <laughs> like right. Yeah, you're like, no, you know what? Just like, I don't want to. I guess also maybe it's like in the back of my head. It's I know I can outrun it, whereas like a lot of mammals, like I would not trust myself to be able to outrun it because usually they're at a size where they have a good enough stamina that's probably better than mine. On uh, Catalina, which is an island off the coast of Southern California, they have buffalo, like just wild buffalo herds that's on awesome. the island. Yeah, it, well, it's funny because they took them over originally to film a movie, and then it was just, like, too much of a pain in the ass to put them back on the boat and, like, take them back to wherever. So they were like, you know what, let's just leave them. And the climate is is perfect, and, like, so the interior of Catalina is populated by, like, herds of wild buffalo. But so we went on, a like, a bus tour that, you know, we were driving around. There was just, like, this effing buffalo standing by the side of the road, and so we got out and they were like okay like the buffalo are very dangerous and they can run 35 miles an hour and they weigh you know 75 tons or whatever and like I'm like oh it's a big floof cow you know and so like <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't like I didn't go pet it or anything but like we have a picture of me standing like somewhat uncomfortably probably a lot closer to this 100% wild animal than was advisable because it was it was a really big hairy cow you know I mean like there were there's there's a kind of there's a sense of familiarity, yeah, that maybe like overrides any kind of danger. But if it had been, yeah, like a, a monitor lizard or something or an alligator, I'd been like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm gonna stay in the car. Like, thanks. Yeah, I feel like crocodiles, especially, uh, like they'd probably go- be my go-to, like for a monster if I had to pick one. And alligators, I guess, fall into that same category, even though they are smaller, but they're pretty monstrous as well. So it's like that very powerful, powerful reptilian animal. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that thing that hippos kill more people than, it, like, sharks and something and some. I mean, that the, like hippos are the deadliest animal that exists on Earth or something, as far as humans are concerned. And like, is part of that because we don't perceive them to be as big of a threat as they are? So then, like, we're more likely to encroach on their territory and make them aggressive, though? Maybe. I mean, that may very well be, yeah. But, like, I would never... Yeah, like, I I, yeah, I would definitely say crocodiles were, like, way scarier than hippos, even though I know, you know, statistically that that's not the case. But, yeah, yeah I'm like... They are very monstrous as well. With that, so It's like a fucking tank with that thick hide and those big big um, teeth but yeah I suppose they maybe fall into that cuteness category a little bit with the round features as well so Mm -hmm. we might be kind of like underestimate them because of that and they're very fast on land as well which uh, crocodiles aren't so you might easily underestimate them okay I think um, this has been very fun but I think we (laughs) gotta start wrapping up soon because we have time constraints here so so I suppose this has been our first episode of Creature Chat and 
I would love to do this again, maybe with some imaginary or mythical or fantastical creatures. If anyone is interested in that, talking to the listener as well now and the people on the call. And uh, yeah. do you guys have any upcoming podcasts you'd like to plug here at the end? Uh, we're still trying to plan a seminar of Ice and Fire on monsters, um, which might overlap in some interesting ways with upcoming episodes of Creature Chat. Um, oh, yeah, that definitely has some overlap. Yeah, so that 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 is in the works, um, and I'll I'll put out the call and the reading uh, soon. I think probably in the next few weeks, but fingers crossed. Yeah, I don't think that I have anything on the schedule. Cool. Also, I looked it up, and javelinas are actually peccaries. <laughs> I did not know that. So oh yeah, can this be our errata section? So uh, animals don't eat the placenta. I mean, animals don't bury the placenta to hide it. They eat it, um, but they do like shove babies out of the nests and stuff to remove the traces. Um, and also, I learned that uh, not only do prairie dogs have a different word for humans. Apparently, they named them, like they did this experiment where they differentiated calls by the color of the shirt that they were wearing. So it wasn't just like human, it was like human in red shirt, oh, human in a blue shirt. Yeah. yeah. Nice that's simultaneous I, I, podcasting research there as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm curious what how well their vision is, if like what colors they can perceive, <laughs> and then how that plays into it. I think it'd be funny to try and trick them. Like if you put on like a gorilla mask or like a, you know, something like, you know, dress normally, but wore like great big wings or something that they would be like, and I don't know what the fuck is over there. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Finer points of fooling prairie dogs. All right. Well, I'd like to thank my fellow podcasters, Jack, Abby and Sarah for this wonderful podcast. And, and this has been Vessels of Kingsgrave, and we'll see you again later on the interwebs. Bye. Bye. Right. Thanks for hosting thank this. Yeah, thank yeah, you. This was really fun. Yep. I can talk about animals for hours. <laughs> we did. <Yeah>. I know. <laughs> yeah, I definitely learned, learned some stuff today, and it was a really interesting discussion as well. Got a little dark and deep at some points, but <laughs> that's okay. I do think it's funny that we're all talking about animals and like none of us are qualified as like having any science background <laughs> with animals or animal behavior. Yeah, that's true. We're just like, I heard a thing. <laughs> well, that's how you learn. Well, I suppose okay. we would have to have a teacher who would correct us, but yeah. I did think about becoming a zoo archaeologist for a hot second, but then I decided no, because I'm bad at biology. Yeah, that, that's pretty much what killed my marine biologist. Yeah. Yeah, so. did you it's say that science. you were digging up some reindeer bones a few summers ago, Abby? Um, so I didn't do any digs, but I, I used to clean the bones for the grad students that they did on digs. And then I took a zoo archaeology course where we had a bunch of, like, the bones from a lot of the digs that my professor did. And we had to, like, it was mostly, like... Like, he, he already knew everything about these bones, and then we had to, like, figure them out. You know, it's like we had to age all the caribou teeth and, like, determine, like, what type of hunting style was used to get the, like, kill the animals and that kind of stuff. So, like, on the that... different 
cuts types of cuts on the bones you would determine it yeah or like where or he would be like okay like this bone these bones were found in like this site and these bones were found in this site so like what can you determine based on that and like that kind of stuff I think just the fact that the discipline of zoo archaeology exists is such an interesting tie-in to some of the stuff that we were talking about. Because archaeology is usually, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it usually the study of like human, like yeah. ancient human constructions and tools? So, and, like, zoo right? archaeology is like how humans interacted with the animals. Yeah. No, it's just it's just so interesting that that wouldn't yeah. be paleontology, right? Like, it would be a very yeah. Specific- yeah. I mean, it it comes down back down to like why archaeology in North America is part of the is considered a part of anthropology, whereas like in Europe, it's its own discipline in the sciences and like oh, that's interesting when everything broke off and the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's my I... favorite thing to do on Wikipedia when I look up an animal is go to the relationship with humans part and just like see the different like ways that the animal has been depicted in the past or like what they're used for and if you can find like archaeological evidence of the animal in the past and like those like uh medieval bestiaries of like how they would uh-huh. draw the animals yeah like they got so much shit wrong yeah 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 sure. no i really i really like um the whole like every time there's a new discovery about like like they recently learned something about horses and um like how the horses uh if like how horses were domesticated that they'd like kind of been wondering for a while with like Mongolians. And it was like, wow, that's really cool now. Like, I just think that stuff is cool. Cause like, animals are so important in human evolution. So mm-hmm. I, I like learning about that. Okay. I, I have, have to the... go play D and D now. Okay, <laughs> I do have the bestiaries. Cause like imagine drawing any number of animals from a description, right? Like, like the elephants in particular, they're like, well, it kind of has like a trumpet on its face. And so you got like, this half pig <laughs> yeah. like you know thing with what is actually just like a trumpet drawn on its face <laughs> you know like i mean okay but that's not exactly what we're yeah i think anyway. i remember the exact drawing that you're talking right? about <laughs> yeah i saw this awesome one about um beavers today i'm gonna link it in the chat like they're always I... like oh so it's it's like a type of dog or like oh yeah <laughs> they start, start yeah, with something they know and then or like the like the elephants are um, it, like asexual basically, and so in order to make more elephants, they have to make like a love potion out of mandrakes. Like they have to like they need like uh, elephant Viagra basically because they I don't know it's it's very very specific and also like how the hell did this happen? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, not a lot of fact checking back in those days. Yeah. Well, the internet was a lot slower, so. Blood carries power, strength, knowledge!